We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God our Creator, not our government. I believe that Scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Good morning. And we are in the month of February now, which means that it's only another about 10 months until the presidential election. <laughs> this is uh, really remarkable that that the primary um, is is basically over in terms of the, the GOP and, and what would generally have been considered an open primary. And so everyone is kind of turning to the general election and, and uh, preparing for this rematch between Trump and Biden and whether or not Biden Biden remains on the ticket, uh, remains to be seen. Kamala Harris earlier this week said, um, oh, he'll be fine. Oh, oh well, let, let me just say he he actually he is fine. He is fine. And then cackled like she normally does. So uh, we will see. We will see about that and what the Democrats decide to do um, in terms of their rep- their potential replacement of Biden. I still maintain that is probably more than 50 percent likelihood that uh, that Joe Biden does not ultimately remain on that ticket come November. But we'll see. Uh, we'll also see what happens on the GOP side and, uh, you know, what happens with the on what will happen with the ongoing legal battles that uh, Trump is facing and some other challenges. But interestingly, there is a third party contender in the race. And this is RFK Jr. And there is a lot of uh, back and forth and varying opinion uh, on him and 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 his prior comments on the Second Amendment. He's kind of uh, reshaped that a little bit to say that he understands uh, the, the need for uh, protecting the right to keep and bear arms and, and is and is generally a lot more conservative than the old school Democrat Party, even that he came from. And he's definitely further to the right than Joe Biden. So this makes it a very interesting potential three-way race. But can he actually get on the ballot? Uh, joining me to discuss all this and more is our good friend, Tho Bishop, who is a content director for the uh, Mises Institute. And and Tho... Um, you know, independent candidates have a really high bar for ballot access. It's not just a guarantee. You need a ton of signatures. You need, you know, to actually go through all of these uh, varying hurdles. And so some have suggested that RFK should run as a libertarian because he would have automatic ballot access. But libertarians with, with a capital L and those kind of in the party, uh, what are they thinking about that potentially? Anyway, it's a very interesting dynamic, and it's one that I think has shifted um, a good bit uh, ever since RFK Jr. put his name sort of in, in the race. Um, I think there's a lot of, of natural overlap on some of the, the major issues in recent years, particularly when it comes to COVID. Um, RFK has been great at utilizing alternative media, which is kind of, you know, the only, you know, that's, that's a, a, 
libertarians do not have mainstream media outlets, and so that has been appealing. And, and for a while there, he was seen as a very strong um, anti-war candidate, particularly when it came to um, the, the Russia-Ukraine situation. And he still has a lot of allies. Um, I think one of the most prominent is David Stockman, who was a former um, budget director under Reagan and then a very close ally to Congressman Ron Paul, um, who has been very outspoken in his support for RFK. Um, you know, the problem is, is that the Libertarian Party in recent years has had kind of a major shift in its leadership. Um, you know, this is not the same Libertarian Party that put in, uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, two former Republican governors. Um, Gary Johnson was fairly Libertarian. Bill Weld was kind of more of a, a moderate and seemed to be kind of actively campaigning for Hillary Clinton by the end of that race in 2016. Um, but you know, that the move there was being very pragmatic. Here's two governors. Bill Weld has fundraising capabilities in particular. Let's put these people on. Let's try to get um, you know, get past five percent of the vote, which they didn't didn't get in 2016. Um, but let's try to to get the 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 most sellable candidate at the top, and then we will kind of figure out everything down ballot. Um, now the LP is very interested in trying to find sort of a, a dogmatic um, educator of libertarian philosophy, and that is not RFK. Um, you know, he, he might have skepticism over some, uh, uh, you know, federal regulators in the medical industry. He might be anti-Dr. Uh, Fauci, uh, but you know, he is someone who is a kind of a, a – a, a, I don't want to say classical liberal because that can mean something different, but kind of a, a traditional – American 20th century liberal in a lot of ways has been very um, concerning on issues like guns, on free speech uh, at, at different points in his career, on environmental policies and the like. And the difficulty is that ever since Ross Perot scared the political establishment back in 1992, the, the rules in terms of getting on ballots and things like that have become so difficult that not having a party infrastructure that can go out and collect petitions and do all that dirty work, it's very difficult for an independent to take the stage um, unless you kind of run through a major party. I mean, Donald Trump's campaign 2016 was kind of a de facto independent run through the GOP, and this puts RFK in a very sort of difficult situation because um, I, I think if he's counting on a Libertarian Party bailout, um, I, I think that's going to be very tough sledding. Yeah, and this is really fascinating to me because, you know, RFK initially was running uh, through the Democrat Party and he was trying to to say, OK, let's let's kind of pull back to uh, the old school Democrats before kind of the Obama era transformed Democrat Party to be further uh, into the progressive left agenda. I mean, in the same way that you, that you rightly just said that that Trump basically ran an independent campaign through the GOP and we've seen the transformation in some good ways and in some, I would argue, um, not so good ways ways of transforming the GOP, but that's kind of the natural um, iteration of, 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 of the political parties changing. And of course, the GOP establishment is trying to hold on uh, to their power and clashing with um, the, the kind of MAGA, what has become the MAGA establishment um, versus the old GOP. So this sets up an interesting proposition, I think, for the LP, where obviously RFK is not libertarian in, in the sense of, of um, conforming with their philosophy, but if they want to be purists, then they're probably not going to get a strong uh, 
candidate on the ballot, just like you mentioned in, you know, in 2016, didn't even get 5%, where if they made this perhaps compromise uh, with RFK and had him on their ballot, yeah, he would have to probably concede a little bit and reinvent himself as, as being able to be on the libertarian ticket. But at the same time, wouldn't that be better potentially long term in terms of viability for their overall party to be a serious contender if they're looking past 2024? And this goes into a lot of the, sort of the debates have been happening. And I'm sure most of your audience has not uh, followed closely uh, the inside workings of the libertarian party. I myself am a, am a Republican. I am not a a capital L libertarian, um, but I have a, a, a lot of friends in that orbit, so I've uh, I've been following it for a while, and this kind of gets to the core of, of the discussion. There is kind of what is the place, you know, what is the purpose of the Libertarian Party in modern America, um, particularly after Trump, where you know you you have a lot of uh, you, you you know you had a lot of anti-establishment kind of populism, um, you know, really kind of capture that mold. Um, or capture that party. And, you know, a lot of the libertarian base wants to see the LP kind of first and foremost as an educational platform, um, kind of similar to what Ron Paul did in his 2008 and 2012 runs. So obviously, he was a sitting member of Congress, so that's as a Republican, so that's kind of a big difference there. He was able to get on major debate stages and be a part of primaries and kind of engage the process in a, a more traditional manner. Um, but so, like the I, one of, if you look at the candidates running right now in the LP, you know, you you have um, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, who is sort of a, a prominent uh, former professor from NYU, former Marxist turned libertarian, who is very educational in the way that he talks about um, you know libertarian issues or the World Economic Forum or um, a lot of these sort of um, larger concerns about the current political establishment. You have podcasters. Uh, like uh, Josh Smith, who's who's in Iowa, um, you've got uh, kind of a different flavor of libertarian, like Chase Oliver, who was on the ballot as a libertarian Senate candidate in the Georgia Senate races in 2012. He's kind of more of a progressive, culturally libertarian, um, who you know is big on trans rights issues and you know prominent you know gay marriage and the like. Where a lot of libertarians are a lot more conservative on those issues. Um, now, what would be interesting is that because there's some of that division, and one thing libertarians are really good at is infighting, um, you know, can the friction between those sort of different smaller tier um, candidates create an opportunity there for, for RFK to be able to spend some money in the party and you know, perhaps gain some favor that way? Um, I think that's the only sort of pathway he has in there. Um, but one of the difficulties is that the libertarian Political apparatus, you know, these are things kind of done in caucuses and at conventions. You don't have sort of a primary strategy. So someone with like a very high name recognition, like RFK Jr. has, um, to, you know, a lot of, I think, rank and file Libertarian Party members may be a lot less familiar with some of these figures trying to be the president, presidential candidate in their own party. Um, because if you're not really, really online, then you, you might not be exposed to it. So th there's a lot of kind of interesting dynamics of the way the, the sausage is made when it comes to third-party runs. Um, but uh, but that's, that's going to be some of the, the issues RFK has. 
Yeah, and, and and all of this is so fascinating because you know if you're looking at um, and I'm not libertarian, certainly not in you know the the capital L sense. I think there has pri- prior to Trump and prior to 2016, I think there was uh, less in the overlap of the Venn diagram between libertarians and the GOP establishment, and now what is considered the GOP, and in terms of uh, populism and pro freedom and some of that, as you rightly said, though Bishop, um, a lot of the MAGA movement has captured. A lot of that uh, libertarian, but especially in young people, I think of organizations like Turning Point USA, for example, that are you know very pro-capitalism, pro-freedom. You know, taxation is theft. I mean, all of these um, kind of hallmarks of, of what would be considered a more of a libertarian bent rather than establishment um, GOP politics uh, prior to 2016. The Venn diagram is now is overlapping a lot more between Republicans and people who would consider, or at least Trump Republicans, and people who would have considered themselves libertarians, at least um, in, in a in an overarching sense. And I know for some people who may be listening who, you know, who are libertarian and very anti-Trump, yeah, you know, you don't fall into that category, but there still is some overlap. And so in terms of the issues, though, I mean, and I think of people like at the Reason Foundation and, you know, some of these, um, the, the the more of the policy wonks and libertarians, I think, are the ones that traditionally have prided themselves on that education piece and really wanting to, um, to promote the the principles of libertarianism and yet if they don't have a candidate that can actually advance their party i mean wouldn't it wouldn't it be better in a sense to say okay well we're not going to necessarily then even engage in presidential politics we'll go for some of these other um, down ballot races or be more of an educational party platform not necessarily one of the major players unless they actually get somebody who can make a difference in terms of the outcome of ballots. I mean, I I just see it really um, from a practical standpoint as saying there could be some overlap between, you know, RFK's policies in terms of medical freedom, you know, some of this other stuff we've talked about, and and trying to at least move the needle forward for, for their, for the LP being um, a viable enough ticket to, to move past 2024. Yeah, and, and this kind of goes to some of some of the interesting um, conflicts there within, because you know if you you, you have a lot of different sort of type of flavors of libertarian. Um, so, like for example, you have sort of the Beltway libertarians of like the Reason uh, Magazine, Reason Foundation, the like, and, um, and and they've been very critical of RFK because they have been very um, kind of defensive. Not necessarily of all of the COVID mandates, but very defensive of, say, the vaccines. And then they kind of highlight the COVID vaccines as some sort of wonder uh, miracle by um, you know, private vaccine you know, pharmaceutical companies. And so they've been very critical of some of the things that RFK Jr. and, and Ron DeSantis and, and other um, you know, more uh, medical freedom advocates have, have been making. And so there's kind of a – he doesn't quite fit that box. Um, again, the anti-war movement in particular has been shaped with, with what has gone on and, with um, And we're going to have to take and, a break here because we're up against a hard break, but we're going to yeah. be right back with more of Tho Bishop talking about all things 2024 when we get back right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. Daisy and her husband decided they never wanted kids. When she found out she was pregnant, she immediately thought abortion. 
But after she and her husband met her baby on an ultrasound and heard the heartbeat, their hearts melted and they chose life. Her baby Jeffrey is healthy and beautiful. Daisy and her husband can't even imagine life without him. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com that's preborn.com speaking truth with love this is jenna ellis in the morning welcome back and i'm talking with uh, our good friend tho bishop who is the content director at the mises institute and we've been talking about this very fascinating um, conflict i think right now uh, between the options that the LP or the Libertarian Party has uh, in contemplating a potential ballot access run for RFK Jr. and how um, that may or may not help their party and some of these different factions. And so going into the break, um, Tho Bishop, I asked you a question right as we, you know, the music was coming on. That was very unfair of me. So um, so I wanted you to, to continue your response here on um, kind of some of these different factions and, and the different uh, contemplations between um, the the libertarians like in the beltway and then some of these other, I, I would maybe describe them as more of the idealistic uh, libertarians. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, you know, this is it's a long running conflict. Um, there's a lot of, 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 of tension there, but I think more important for your audience is, you know, less the, the libertarian sort of infighting and more about, you know, what, what is the, 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 the impact on other parties and, and kind of the larger 2024 picture? And one of the issues that RFK Jr. has really kind of made himself a lot of enemies out of former allies with the LP has been his very strong defense of Israel um, after with everything going on in Gaza. And you know, the reason why that matters is that you know, when you look at and, and, and so you know, someone, so if, if you were looking at RFK as being this this ideal, um, you know, we're willing to accept bad environmental policy, we're willing to accept all the baggage, but hey, if if he is going to be sort of a, uh, a a a pacifist on American foreign policy, then I think that would have got brought a lot of libertarians in. But since he has a very strong um, uh, support for American aid to Israel during that conflict, that kind of changes that game. And I think this is a very interesting factor for 2024 because, you know, really the question is, you know, what are the candidates out there that can get the most ballot access that are going to drain support from one of the two major party tickets? And that's where if the LP um, is, you know, if, if, if the LP base um, is really committed to putting someone who, you know, wants to you know, march in D.C. calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, that could be an interesting dynamic where that could actually have a big impact in, say, Michigan, where you have a strong Muslim community there. Um, there's all sorts of polling about um, very strong disapproval of the Biden administration with that conflict with, um, you know, with Muslim voters. Um, you know, to me, I, if, if I was with the RNC, my top priority would be getting like Cornell West in particular on the Michigan ballot, because some of those, you know, I think I think more than COVID, um, which you know, for, for better or for worse, you know, I think you know we saw that night with, with Santos's uh, 
primary campaign has sort of left the, the stage as a major driver of um, electoral behavior. I think some of these issues that are or might be fringe positions relative to the larger political dynamic, if those fringe positions can move 5 10 percent of traditionally Democratic voters or 5 10 percent of you know, conservative voters that may not like Trump, that's where you can really start making a difference on the margins on some of those states. And so, you know, if the LP ends up going with someone who, who might be able to go to, um, you know, uh, uh, some of these some of these very left wing districts in Michigan with a a message on the Israeli conflict that they like, then that's one way that the LP could actually perhaps be a, an asset to Trump, um, whether or not they intend to. And so, I think that's kind of the, the more interesting dynamic out there in terms of how some of these third party pieces on the board will actually uh, matter. Yeah, and, and this is such a fascinating discussion. And so yeah, there's a lot of calculation for RFK, um, also for the LP. So how does the establishment, and for purposes of this conversation, that would be the two major parties, um, how do they potentially arrange their pieces on the board heading into 2024? Because obviously um, neither party wants to uh, cede any uh, of their um, percentages, because they, they both need each other to survive. I mean, this is a symbiotic relationship, and, and, and the Democrats need the Republicans, the Republicans need the Democrats um, in terms of the major parties to to continue to coexist, and that's just a, an unfortunate reality of, of American politics right now. So how do they factor all of this into their calculus? Well, I think some of that, that um, symbiotic relationship is, is kind of falling on the wayside. I, I think that you know the the a lot of the norms that have existed in the past are are breaking down, and you know we kind of see this I think playing out with some of the the um, the, the council for debates, uh, which third parties have long sort of argued has been unfair, um, and perhaps rightfully so. Um, but you know the GOP is pulling out of that, um, so I, I think some of the that that natural cohesion is kind of breaking down. I think the most interesting though is going to be. Um, you know, when we look at major pieces, one is going to be, you know, are we really going to have a Trump Kamala ticket on on the left? Um, you know, what is Trump's VP choice going to be? Is it going to be someone that tries to court Nikki Haley voters, or is it going to be someone who tries to um, court, you know, let's let's call it, you know, Viv- Vivek Ramaswamy, DeSantis voters who might be a little more cynical about Trump at the top of the ticket now? Um, you know, where did where, where do they sort of align their strategy going forward? You know, is, is it focusing on suburbs? Is it focusing on Joe Rogan listeners? Um, you know, so the, some of the alt media types. I think that, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see some of those very obvious decisions on, you know, what names are on the ballot. Um, and then again, after that, where some of the, the third party um, pieces you know where you know again, where is the Cornell West on the ballot that might help take up you know some some black voters or some some Muslim voters? Where where can a Libertarian Party candidate that you know might you know will they pull from Trump folks or will there's they they take advantage of some of the the fringe issues um, that might appeal to more left wing voters? Um, that's you know I think we'll we'll see a lot more clarity on that once some of the final decisions on the ballots are made. Um, but yeah, there's a lot more, I think, up in the air. You know, I think there's, there's the opportunity for for more impact from some of these um, uh, minor political figures, minor, minor political parties that perhaps we've had in quite a while. 
Yeah, and, and I'm speaking with Tho Bishop, who is the content director at uh, the Mises Institute, and um, your your ex says hashtag paleo libertarian. So not not an actual libertarian, but I but yeah. I love that hashtag. But um, but this is why this conversation is so important because the mainstream media, of course, because uh, they are part of the establishment wing. I mean, you know, Fox News is basically the the press office for the Republican Party, and I would um, I would say that CNN and MSNBC work the same way for the DNC, right? Um, so everyone is wanting to. Position this in mainstream media and general politics as Trump versus Biden, and only focus on that. But I think you're right that um, the the third party issues here, not just RFK, but uh, but kind of broader, need to be discussed. And it's a it's going to be a very very interesting uh, about ten months, and and particularly also the issues that that any of the candidates choose to focus on. And while the border uh, was was one of the number one issues, uh, the top issues coming out of some of the GOP exit polls, obviously the economy is also a really big issue. And uh, where are we positioned in terms of moving into 2024 and how uh, that may affect uh, the political landscape overall? Well, the economy in particular right now is, is, a, is a fascinating one because, you know, if there are certain measures where and this is what the, the Biden administration likes to, to point at, um, often they are very, you know, there's a lot of charts, there's a lot of sort of um, kind of government-managed statistics. Um, for example, like, oh, look, inflation rates are going down. Um, and it's true, again, inflation rates are not as high as they were um, you know, a couple years ago, according to official measures, which don't leave out little things like energy or or food prices um, that has helped provide cover for the Federal Reserve to kind of illust- uh, indicate that they are looking to pivot um, and bring down interest rates in 2024. That could have consequences where you know if, if interest rates go down, mortgage rates go down. Um, the psychological boost there comes not only from you know perhaps some people that have, are sitting on the sidelines of the housing market; they might be more willing to get into it. Um, of course, the, the prices of housing haven't fallen um, a, a great deal, but that'll make it easier to finance a house. Um, and of course, the stock market likes a lower interest rate environment. And so if people see their 401ks going up, the stock prices going up, then you know, that can have a psychological boost as well that could support um, you know, anyone in power, in this case, the Biden administration. The problem is that some of the, the underlying problems have, have not gone away. Um, in fact, one of the biggest issues out there is kind of the, the health of the, the banking industry, particularly regional banks. Um, the the you know, at the same time as the Fed is saying, "Hey, look, the economy's looking doing great, inflation's going down. We've won the battle there." Um, they're they're making all sorts of new programs, um, new initiatives to help create sort of backstops for a banking sector that they think is is a lot more fragile. Than they talk about. They made a, a, a massive policy announcement um, a couple weeks ago um, that would make it easier, for that, that would encourage more banks to borrow directly from the Fed to help sort of bail out that debt that they have. Um, and the other side of it is that, you know, they're going to talk about the, rel- the, the performance of the American economy relative to the rest of the world. And it's true, relative to the rest of the world, the American economy on GDP figures and some of these measurements looks great. Or looks looks better. Let me, part, let me be specific there. Looks better than other countries. The problem is, is that a lot of the GDP data it, it factors in government spending. Government spending is still crazy. Factor, you know, uh, debt, you know, isn't counted against it. You know, it actually boosts up numbers, and we're very overly indebted. And so we have this dynamic. And this is one of the biggest fundamental problems that we've had 
from an economic perspective for a very long time, is that a lot of the key measures that sort of macroeconomic experts out there look like do not really tell the story of what is happening at the kitchen tables of Americans. There's a complete disconnect. And, and so, you know, you're the, the, all the food, all the, all the price increases that we saw under, under COVID, they haven't gone away. Um, you know, some, you know, uh, a, you know, you're still paying a lot more at the grocery store. You're still, you know, your, your paycheck's not going as far as it's, as it has in the past. The increase of those prices might be slower than it was, but we're never getting back down to, you know, 2019 prices across the board, um, you know, outside of you know, perhaps some specific sectors in the economy. And, and so, you know, we just keep adding on more debt. We, we are finding ways to prevent the necessary corrections that are needed to deal with a lot of the, you know, what we call malinvestment, um, a lot of these larger structural problems. And this is why the economic system is going to continue to benefit kind of the, those that are most invested in stocks and, you know, uh, speculative financial assets, while those working paycheck to paycheck are going to be the ones that you just do not see the same economic gains as if you were you know, well invested and have the money to do so. And so it's, just, it's going to be kind of this interesting battle on how much can, you know, some of the stock market psychological effects, assuming that continues to go well, how much can the constant propaganda campaign from official, you know, economic departments, um, how, how much can they sort of gaslight the public into selling that the economy is much better than it really is. Uh, but again, this has been the kind of the core of, of modern economics for a very long time. Um, and again, it, that's refusing to deal with some of these underlying problems is uh, one of the reasons why we're in the state that we're in. And and I just really don't get that, um, though, Bishop, between this, uh, and I think that there is a big disconnect between what goes on around the family table and when, you know, when we all go to the store and we see that, you know, a box of Cheerios is like $7. I mean, this is ridiculous. And yet people are still going to be to buy into that propaganda and say, oh, well, the economy is turning around and, you know, and the blah, 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 blah from the, the economists that they, that they think, oh, these talking heads know a lot more than I do when it really doesn't translate to more money in their wallets or things being cheaper. And yet some, some, Democrats will still or, you know, or even disaffected Democrats or moderates will still think that Joe Biden is doing a good job. I, I just don't understand that. Well, I, I think we've solved and I, I think this was particularly true with the 2022 midterms is that, you know, we're just in a world right now where you know, economic well-being takes a secondary issue, um, uh, a secondary role to particularly cultural issues. And so, again, you had plenty of people that drove by gas stations where, you know, filling up their tank was twice as much um, because, you know, they were motivated almost entirely by, you know, abortion access and the like. Um, you know, there's the other side of this that, you know, the left is really good at creating scapegoats. So, you know, it's blame, you know, businesses, it's blame entrepreneurs, it's blaming, you know, all sorts of other aspects to it. And there's plenty of, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of, of you know, particularly big businesses that work hat in hand with the government, and, and they should be blamed, right? You know, you're not going to see me out there defending Pfizer or anything like that. Um, there's plenty of bad actors in the quote-unquote private sector. Um, you know, but you know, the, the left is really good at, you know, when you feel economic anxiety, blame, you know, blame your landlord, blame these other folks. Um, you know, the government's gonna, going to be the force that you want for your desired social and cultural ends. We're going to go after your enemies, whatever they might be. And so, 
people just get you know it's you know so people vote themselves into a continuing process of poverty um or or at least economic stagnation um and it's a it's a very scary thing but you know this is something that we've seen throughout history um you know there's all sorts of of regimes where the people you know, kind of particularly in the bottom and the people at the top kind of kept pushing for a specific sort of political end those that were kind of the middle class that um you know wanted to start their own business rather than being uh kind of a, a, a you know being an employee or something like that they kind of are the ones that are more more attuned into way small businesses and um you know the, the productive sector are hurt by government policies they kind of go a different direction and you know one of the biggest problems we have right now is, is economic literacy at the most basic level and when you have generations of americans that are taught economics poorly um then it's not surprising that the government is able to to you know bamboozle them and to kind of misdirect their anger that should be directed straight to them to other people and so again who's going to win that that sort of battle over the anger and angst over younger generations i think that's going to end up shaping you know real in a big way um, where politics goes forward in the next you know, 10 15 years yeah really well said and you know we could um extrapolate that to uh, a lot of other topics like even just basic civics that the left is is able to do some of these kind of psyops because and say you know have nancy pelosi say this is unconstitutional when it's literally in the text of the constitution and you know some of these other things but this is why americans moving forward and particularly conservatives need to make sure that we are uh, well educated on the issues and we also don't let the democrats focus on things like uh, pro-life and and the whole abortion question instead of the economy instead of the border and let them get away with controlling the narrative so we are out of time uh for this segment but we'll be right back with more here on jenna ellis in the morning If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advantage from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health share ministry, serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend, too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And turning to a very important topic, if you have not already heard, and I'm sure all of you have, the number one rap song right now on the charts is by none other than Ben Shapiro. Listen to just a few seconds of the brilliance of this song. Listen to this. I don't care if I offend you. I was brave to upset you. You can cry and you can scream. You can ride in the streets. You defunded the police. Now there's no one to Let's just keep it real, thanks, don't care. 
So, of course, we need to break down exactly when Ben Shapiro became a rapper. And so joining me now is none other than Andrew Clavin, who is one of the geniuses behind the Daily Wire entertainment side, as well as the overall uh, Daily Wire brand. And Drew, I just have one question. When did you know that Dr. Dreidel would come on the scene with all of his rapping brilliance? Yeah, yeah no, uh, Jupac has always been there behind the scenes. We always knew that Ben was the you know the greatest rapper of his age. We didn't you know we didn't want to brag about it. We didn't want to get in the way of other artists and just destroy them. But uh, the time had come. The time had come to unleash him and uh, and let him out. So uh, so I mean, have you heard from Eminem or um, that's that's literally the only <laughs> other rapper I know. So I mean, you know, any of these other ones who who are just so offended now that uh, that now this amazing conservative has broken into their industry. Yeah, well, you know, we expected the rap industry being the way it is. We expect uh, him to be, you know, just riddled with machine gun fire. Unfortunately, with Shapiro, you know, people have to wait online. There's a line of people with machine guns outside the building. So, uh, you know, they have to take a little number. And, uh, you know, we just wait for them. We let each one in at a time. And, you know, Ben's very quick, so he keeps dodging the bullets. And we think he'll continue to have a great career. Well, you know, as an alleged gangster myself, I am only offended that I wasn't included. And I hope that I can bring my fedora to the to the subsequent uh, album that, you know, I mean, this was just released as a single. I think that he needs to expand this into a, a full album if we're even doing that these days. Um, maybe I'm dating myself, but um, but, you know, so can we expect more? Uh, uh, you know, I, I hope not, because then I'd have to kill him. And uh, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing I, as, as the OG of the Daily Wire, you know, there's uh, nothing I hate more than rap music. And uh, so I think uh, this is enough as far as I'm concerned. But uh, yeah, well, it was, I, I do have to say, it was, it was hilarious. And when I heard him come out and call himself Dr. Dreidel, I just about fell out of my chair. I thought that was one of the funny, I, I don't know who came up with that line. <laughs> one of the funniest things that's ever come out of the Daily Wire. That entire clip of and, and you know Ben Shapiro's wearing sunglasses and you know, I mean he looks like a rapper and other than he hasn't quite gone as far as getting the grill you know in his, in his teeth whatever it, it was it was hilarious and um, you know I'm just waiting for the Broadway musical that will feature his song and I hope that we can educate children on civics through his rap music but you know but all all joking aside I mean you know th- this has been a a really interesting way that Daily Wire has taken the entertainment industry uh, to the next level, I think, by by genuinely putting in and infusing conservative values into entertainment in a way that we haven't seen from conservatives. Because let, let's be honest here, I mean, we're kind of boring when we go to our little conferences and we have all of these people just speaking behind the podium with their PowerPoints. That's not really translating to the younger generation. I think it's in general, you know, the culture does not want a bunch of angry people complaining that the times have changed because times always change. You know, conservative values can be eternal, but they have to be eternal in the form of the time that they're in. And I think a lot of the conservative movement has, uh, you know, just used that that angry tone. You know, I I was thinking about this in terms of uh, your old pal, Donald Donald Trump, you know, that that Facts, facts are harsh things. Truth is a harsh thing. You know, when you when you tell the truth, it's, it's oftentimes not popular because the truth is not harsh. But all of us, when we speak to the people we love, we tell harsh truths 
in kind ways. And I think that uh, sometimes conservatives feel so justified in the fact that we are telling the truth, and it is true the left is lying and lying about the, just the nature of reality. But you don't always, you, you can tell the truth in, in a way that's not absolutely assaultive. And part of the way you do that is through the culture. I mean, part of the way that the left has spread its lies is by telling stories, because stories are just such a powerful vehicle. And and so one of the things I love about just being at the Daily Wire and just being with the guys at the Daily Wire, they're actually a pretty fun crowd. You know, they're actually very funny. They're they're very loose. They're not angry uh, people for the most part, unless something ex- exceptionally offensive happens. And and we get hit for that a lot. You would you would be surprised how often people on the right feel that we're not doing our job because we're popular, because we're making money, because maybe we don't hate as many people as we're supposed to. I get that all the time. I don't hate you. Don't, you just, if you were a better Christian, you would hate more people. And and I just I, I don't think that that's the way forward. Forget about even forget about the PR aspect of it, about the appeal of it. Who wants to live like that? You know, that's not the way I want to live. I want to live, you know, and, and enjoy. You, get, you go around, you go through life once. It's very short. I, I want to enjoy it. And I think that uh, people who feel that way are the people who create culture. You know, we all know that life is tragic. We all know that there's suffering. We all know there's injustice. All of those things are true. And yet, you know, there's there's nothing you can accomplish there's nothing you can accomplish that you can't accomplish with joy. I really do believe that. And it doesn't mean, and when I say joy, you, you know, you've known me for a long time. You know, I don't mean like happiness. I don't mean like a big, we all turn into a big yellow smiley face. What I mean is that, you know, you want to be talking about the things you love. You want to be talking about loving life and about uh, the loving freedom and about loving, you know, building things and creating new things instead of just always shaking your hand at the shaking your fist at the latest crazy idea of the left. And it's very easy to get angry. The left has abused its power. The left is uh, is sexually, uh, you know, grooming children and attacking children. It's it's very easy to get angry at them. But instead, what I think the cult, a, a real culture does is it creates a, a different vision of how to go forward. And I think that that's what we've been trying to do with the Daily Wire from day one. And it's fun because right now I feel like we're actually on the march. You know, it's like the left is failing everywhere. Everything they do, every idea they have is being laughed out of court. The only thing they have is the tremendous power, A, of the government, which the Biden administration is happy to abuse by arresting people and shutting people down, and and B, of the culture. They just have so much communicative power that it's very, very tough to fight them. So I feel very much as if we have been in a very successful new American revolution where we are the guys hiding behind rocks and popping up and taking pot shots at the empire as the empire in their red coats goes marching by. But right this minute, I think we're kind of on the up. I think we're winning. And I think the, the left is certainly receding. And I think the angry, what, they, what they're going to do, what the left is going to do now, is emphasize the angry voices and, and amplify the angry voices. And if we get caught up in that, I think then we blow an opportunity to really present what we're giving people, which is, you know, the joy, the joy of faith, the joy of freedom, the joy of being an American, the joy of creativity and building businesses and making money and and doing all the things that America has historically done. So we're just trying to represent that. And, of course, 
having Ben Shapiro be the number one rapper in America. Let me just add that. He's just the number one rapper in America. Uh, it's just uh, part, of, part of the fun we're having. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know. It's all, it's all good right now. You know, I think that we have to be very careful uh, not to, let, not to let, let the left drag us into, you know, anger at them because who needs them? They, they fail at everything. Everything they touch turns to garbage. You know, I think we just present better ideas and move forward. And I'm speaking with Andrew Clavin of The Daily Wire, and uh, he's the host of The Andrew Clavin Show that you can watch. And I would encourage everyone to subscribe to The Daily Wire and uh, to support the great work that they're doing. Uh, they're instead of, Drew, you know, taking a page from the GOP version of the Bible, which is, you know, the first commandment is to hate one another. Right. I mean, that just seems like <laughs> what what we're what we're doing. Right. Because with all of the outrage, I mean, even this this kind of faux outrage at Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, and you know this is a major um, psyop to to rig the election. I mean, th- this is just laughable what some of these so-called influencers have become. Instead of doing exactly what you're suggesting, which is to have joy in the American dream and to just do what the left has done well, do it better, and actually influence the culture through entertainment and stories and creativity and jobs and making money and all the things that that we appreciate about life. Well, yeah, you know, this thing with Travis Kelsey and, uh, and Taylor Swift is ridiculous. Women love this relationship because Kelsey is a manly man. He gets out of the car. He holds the door open for her. He's obviously a successful, powerful. He's a football player, so he's obviously a, a powerful guy. I'm a big football fan. I don't want to see them cutting away to Taylor Swift, but, you know, so what? The NFL is a money-making machine. That's what they do. They realize there's more money in the room. They go after it. You, you know, it's, it's like this is... It's a funny thing because I understand that Taylor Swift is a lefty, that she's going to come out and endorse Biden. Who cares? She endorsed the Senator uh, um, Blackburn's uh, candidacy, she, her, her opponent in Tennessee, and she won, Marshall Blackburn won with, uh, 11, by 11 points. You know, she, she doesn't have that kind of political clout. In fact, culturally, culturally, this relationship is a win for the right because it's a old-fashioned male-female relationship, and women are swooning over it. And so we're just dumb about the culture. We are just so dumb because we think that pounding our fists and hating people and being angry is, is a way forward. If only they would listen to the truth, you know, they would understand that we just need to uh, turn on people. And look, the left is good at, at sparking that in us. I mean, look at the way they're, they're mistreating, I feel, Donald Trump. They're, they're, they are persecuting, so we get angry. Instead, we should be, sit back and think, yeah, well, never mind what, what they're doing. What's good for us? You know, what is good for the country and for people? And I think this, this Swift-Kelsey thing is just a perfect example of the right uh, stepping on its own feet instead of grabbing the moment. We just, we just don't get the culture. We've been out of it for so long. We've been blacklisted out of it. We've been squeezed out of it. We've been shouted out of it. And so now we're kind of taking our ball and going home when really what we should be doing is building our own. And that, that is the key thing about the Daily Wire. We're not trying to change Hollywood. We're trying to be Hollywood. And that's what the, the right has to learn how to do. Yeah, that is such a really excellent point, um, Andrew Clavin, that you know we're taking the obvious cheap shot just because Taylor Swift is a Democrat instead of recognizing that 
hey, men are men and women are women. And maybe we need to point that out and show how even Democrats recognize that. And they're celebrating uh, this type of relationship that is based in traditional values. And then the one other thing that you just said, instead of trying to reinvent our institutions or recapture them, we just need to start our own. And, And what Daily Wire does that is so effective is that you're not trying to just go in and transform Hollywood. You're not trying to go in and um, take over. You're actually just starting your own. And in the in the American form of capitalism, we can still do that. And you're doing it incredibly well. And so for um, for listeners who have been so focused on just the political side instead of the culture side, how do we start breaking back into culture in a way that's meaningful? Well, you know, the, the people who figured this out first, I would say, are the Christians. And it's, it's interesting because I, I myself have been guilty of sometimes attacking Christian movie making for its, its sweetness. It's all, you know, everything works out and Jesus saves everything. And, you know, if you, if you believe, then everything will turn out well. And you, you've seen these movies. But, but I've kind of reconsidered my position on this because, because of the movie um, The Sound of Freedom with Jim Caviezel, which is a really good thriller about people rescuing children from child trafficking institutions that has had this enormous uh, Christian backing and has an enormous Christian feeling. And Caviezel, in one of my favorite scenes in movies in a long time, uses the words of Jesus as a Humphrey Bogart tough guy line when he says, you know, if you if you bother one of my little ones, it better a millstone would be tied around your neck. He just delivers it as a cop line. And I thought like that. That's genius, you know, turn the Bible into a Humphrey Bogart movie. That is, that is an act of, of pure uh, in, in inspiration. And so what happens is that what the Christians did that was so smart is they went after, they fished where the fish were. They went after the audience. The audience wanted clean, upbeat, you know, Christian entertainment. They gave them what they wanted. So people like me who like stuff a little darker, a little tougher, were alienated by that. But their audience swar- swarmed in. When an audience swarms in, what happens is talent is attractive, and talent does more interesting things and deeper things and richer things. And so you're also getting a, a picture like Sound of Freedom, which ducked around um, the distribution monopoly of Hollywood and basically outdid them and made uh, over $100 million, I believe, in, in profits. And, and it's also a very good movie. So, so that really is the way you do it. You know, you start... We made this film, Lady Ballers. It's a silly comedy about guys uh, pretending to be girls so they can win a basketball tournament. You know, it's silly, but people show up. They like it. It, It's good. And as you do that stuff, the more the audience turns up, the more you build a a business, the more talent is attracted to it. and, And you get better and deeper stuff as well. Yeah, really well said. And I think that uh, Christians and conservatives need to start infiltrating the culture and reclaiming the culture and telling our stories and telling uh, them with with passion and with um, good actual entertainment value and and starting to transform the culture in the ways that you've suggested. And so um, Drew Clavin, always really appreciate it. Uh, Subscribe to The Daily Wire and support the work that they're doing. And that's all the time that we have for today on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. You can reach me and my team, Jenna, at AFR.net.
I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.